A Colorado district court heard oral arguments this week to determine whether the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban disqualifies former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 ballot. In this Q&A episode from November 2021, Professors Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick talk about their book, Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, and how judges have misinterpreted it since its adoption in 1868. We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C-SPAN's podcasts. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operation so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Brandy Barnett and Evan Burnick, you together have a new book called The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. In it, you argue that we, quote, must get our constitutional house in order. Randy Barnett, what is disordered about our constitutional house? Well, we have a very important amendment that uh, most of the country doesn't even know exists. It's the 14th Amendment. It is the amendment um, that is an issue every time you hear about a First Amendment challenge to a state law, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of press, or a Second Amendment challenge to the state law. The original Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. So if you have an individual right, a constitutional right against the state government, you have that right because of the 14th Amendment. But the Supreme Court uh, began misinterpreting the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was enacted in 1868 by the Republicans in order to fight uh, the white supremacy and the black codes that had arisen in the South after the abolition of slavery, which was abolished by the 13th Amendment. Um, and from eight, f- beginning in 1873, the Supreme Court um, systematically uh, gutted the amendment and by misinterpreting it. And we've been paying the price for its initial misinterpretation of the of the uh, 14th Amendment ever since. Well, Evan Burnick, what are some of the prices society has been paying? So society has paid the price in the form of one of the most uh, tragic cases um, in recent uh, Supreme Court's uh, constitutional decisions in the form of uh, DeShaney v. Winnebago County Social Services. This is a case involving um, what's come to be known as the state action doctrine, which holds that the 14th Amendment only applies to state action. It doesn't oblige states to provide protective services to anybody in respect of their civil rights. And DeShaney involved a a young boy who was beaten repeatedly by his father and whose uh, abuse came to the attention of social services that never intervened in order to protect him from his father's violence. Um, Ultimately, he was beaten into a life-threatening coma and was left permanently mentally disabled. The Supreme Court said, that's not a matter for the Constitution to address because the 14th Amendment only applies to state action. One of the things that we show in our research is that one of the primary functions of the Equal Protection of the Laws Clause um, was, in fact, to empower Congress, empower legislatures to intervene to protect people from private violence, in particular the violence of the Ku Klux Klan and their allies uh, as they sought to sabotage Reconstruction. Uh, We now have a constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court that says that a state is under no constitutional obligation to stop a father from uh, almost beating his son to death. And that is both a moral problem and it's a constitutional problem. Uh, that we seek to address by marshalling the evidence that we do. Staying with this thought of the 
uh, the utmost significance of the 14th Amendment. Let's listen to Justice Neil Gorsuch talking about it uh, in general and the Equal Protection Clause in particular. This is from March of 2017. The point of originalism, textualism, whatever label you want to put on it. What a good judge always strives to do, and I think we all do, is strive to understand what the words on the page mean, not import words that come from us, but apply what you, the people's representatives, the lawmakers, have done. And so when it comes to equal protection of the laws, for example, it matters not a whit that some of the drafters of the 14th Amendment were racists, because they were, or sexists, because they were. The law they drafted promises equal protection of the laws to all persons. That's what they wrote. I think that guarantee, equal protection of the laws guarantee, the 14th Amendment, that it took a civil war for this country to win, is maybe the most radical guarantee in all of the Constitution, and it may be all of human history. Randy Barnett, enlighten us a little bit more about this thought of how radical it is for not only our own Constitution, but perhaps any Constitution in history. Well, what we have here is a provision that protects the fundamental rights of each and every citizen, um, the privileges of citizenship, as well as the, as the natural rights or the fundamental rights of each and every person. Um, from being deprived. Um, and it creates two um, avenues of redress uh, if that is to happen. Uh, the first is the courts, because Section 1 of the 14th Amendment is an injunction to the courts. to decide. It's the higher law that the courts must enforce when confronting an inferior law, like a statute that's in conflict with it. And secondarily, Section 5 of the, of the 14th Amendment creates an enumerated power in Congress to create remedies uh, to protect the rights of individuals from their states when their states are failing to do so. So this is a very uh, radical, it, it is a, let's put it this way, I don't know how radical it is, but it's a major change to our federalism. It was a qualification of the system of federalism we had implemented in, uh, in 1788 uh, when the initial con original constitution was ratified. Evan Burnick, in the introduction to your book, Civil War Era Historian James Oakes tells your readers that your book actually has a very specific audience in mind, and that is the sitting Supreme Court justices, and that you hope to change the way that they interpret the Constitution. Can you talk a little bit more about that goal? So there is a majority of justices on the Supreme Court now who either claim to be, or at least are open to arguments about original meaning, the original public meaning of the constitutional text. Our book investigates the most significant, uh, most significant, most often litigated uh, constitutional text um, that these justices are empowered to interpret um, to the extent that they would uh, fulfill their commitments, their promises, and their public statements to the effect, as you just heard Justice Gorsuch talk about, um, that the law that um, governs them, that empowers them, is the original meaning of the text of the law, then we feel that we are at a point where we can persuade uh, a, a Supreme Court that is more 
open to originalist arguments than perhaps any Supreme Court in our country's history. It's a unique opportunity. Now, of course, that doesn't guarantee that it will actually happen, but we want to have the evidence. We want to put it forward. We want to give them the opportunity to fulfill their expressed commitments, even when, as uh, it often does in the course of our book, it leads to conclusions that people who are right of center uh, might find uh, not congenial. Randy Barnett, uh, do you have any uh, evidence in history of a book successfully influencing the direction of the Supreme Court? Um, well, let me think. Let me think. Uh, I think uh, John Hart Ely's Democracy and Distrust uh, was a very influential book. It gave a theory of uh, repre representation reinforcement, which was a way of understanding which uh, rights the Supreme Court would protect and which ones they would not protect. Uh, so I do think that one is influential. Um, I do think one reason why uh, we, we might be hopeful that our book might have more influence than other books, uh, picking up where Evan left off, is the justices who uh, have publicly committed themselves to being an originalist, we think, may be more likely to believe the scholarship produced by people who themselves are originalists, which we are, than they might be to believe somebody who is not an originalist but is generating originalist arguments for their consumption, which is what many amicus briefs consist of that are filed before the court. So I think they're going to give, they might very well give us a, a better shot um, at filling in some of the gaps of their own understanding about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, which most people have, and they're not to be faulted for, this book has this book needed to be written <coughs> excuse me this book needed to be written because this information was lacking i want to learn a little bit about your partnership uh randy barnett you i hope are be a familiar face to c-span audiences uh, because of the work you've done with us before but you lead georgetown law school center for the constitution evan burnick you teach law at northern illinois university you two are a generation apart in in age and i'm wondering how the two of you came together to work on this project how did it all get started evan you want to start oh sure so you know we recount our the story of our meeting and our collaboration beginning at the same time as an Institute for Justice conference um, several years ago. I was working at, it's called IJ, it's a libertarian public interest law firm as the assistant director of the Center for Judicial Engagement, which was kind of like the in-house source of constitutional scholarship that animated the litigation and um, articulated a role that judges ought to take with respect to enforcing the constitution. And, um, in the course of my performing that role, I spent a lot of time with Randy's work and the work of other originalists. And I ultimately came to the conclusion that there might be a little bit something, a little bit important missing from an area of originalist theory, which was the question of what do you do when the text runs out, when the original meaning runs out? The traditional answers that originalists had come to give is, well, you have to engage in constitutional construction. Original meaning won't tell you what to do. And okay, well, that's potentially a lot. Uh, there are a lot of constitutional provisions that are litigated. There are a lot of disputes about what they mean. Uh, judges are time pressed and they don't have the benefits that historians do of the ability to spend a lot of time with the primary sources. So I started thinking about how to fill in the construction zone. And I approached Randy after this conference and told him about my idea, which 
um, was, it, as it happens, not just my idea. It was something that he had been thinking about as well. The idea of judges as agents, empowered, given a great deal of discretion that they needed to exercise in good faith, consistently with the original purpose, we argued, of the constitutional provisions that they're interpreting. You develop doctrine that fulfills the purpose of the text when the text doesn't tell you directly what to do. That led to a series of projects and ultimately took us down a road where, um, due to a confluence of circumstances, uh, we ended up focusing on the 14th Amendment and deploying the, uh, the theory that we had developed together um, in the context of this important amendment. When did you know, Randy Barnett, that you had a book? Well, um, Evan um, produced a rough manuscript of a portion of what we were doing with respect to the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which is one of the clauses of Section 1. And it be immediately became obvious to me that this manuscript uh, could not be reduced to an article um, and had to be restructured and, and refocused uh, to be the first part of a book. We also had another article that we'd already published on the due process of law, and that just meant uh, if we could reshape this Privileges or Immunities material, and add the due process material and then do a separate treatment of the Equal Protection Clause, we'd have a book. And in fact, uh, it would be the kind of thing that would only really be presentable as a book. Um, and so that's how we got started. That's how we knew that, that this was going to be a book project, although it took several years to actually produce a book. There are 69 pages of notes in your book, referencing a great deal of original research. And in the acknowledgments, you write, our prior views of each of the clauses has had to be revised as a result of this research in ways that surprised us. Can you each point to an example of a surprise that you had in doing the research? Randy, I'll start with you. Yeah, I was surprised um, that the, that in identifying what the privileges or immunities clause um, uh, it means, or what are the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, that one should look to the positive law of this of a supermajority of the states to identify those fundamental rights. That in fact, um, I had previously thought that this was a protection of natural rights. But the way to understand the Privileged Immunities Clause is to realize that civil rights are the rights you get from government in exchange to protect from your, uh, for leaving the state of nature to protect your natural rights. And therefore, to identify what a civil right is, which is what the Privileges or Immunities Clause are, you need to look at the positive law of the states in this case to figure out what the Privileges or Immunities of Citizenship are. This is not the view that I went, uh, that I set out to show. This is not the view I started with that I have enunciated in my previous work. And what about you, Evan Burnett? Well, I was actually persuaded by Randy's view of the Privileges or Immunities Clause from his previous work. So I had to adjust my priors as I was coming across this, what I took to be an overwhelming amount of evidence that natural rights are protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause only to the extent that they are specified in the positive law of the states and, and protected by the positive law of the states. So I learned with Randy, having followed Randy along that earlier line. Uh, the other thing that I was surprised to discover involves the equal protection of the laws clause. There are two things that I was surprised by. First, the degree to which um, equal protection has a, is a history within abolitionism, within radical abolitionism. Um, one of the central points that we make over the course of our book is in, you know, to borrow from Justice Gorsuch, uh, the 14th Amendment is a radical amendment, not only in the sense that its promises are 
in the annals of political history more generally unusual, but that it, the central ideas, the constitutional theory that underpins section one and section five was developed by a beleaguered radical movement towards the end, beginning, of the uh, beginning of the 19th century that only over the course of time and contestation and a bloody war um, saw its ideas become hegemonic and actually structure um, what Congress did, what the Congress proposed and the states ratified. Uh, we got an amendment that was mainstream among Republicans who themselves were influenced by the most radical of radical abolitionists. So that was what I was surprised to discover. The other thing I was surprised to discover is that you know, there had been a traditional dispute over uh, equal protection with um, most people holding what the Supreme Court holds to be the, the orthodox view that equal protection just protects people against discrimination, discrimination of any kind. Um, and there's an alternative uh, originalist point of view that argues that protection is just about protection, protection against physical violence. Um, we found um, that the, the, the core of equal protection is something in between. It's not just protection against discrimination, but it's not just protection against violence either. It restricts both the states and non-state actors in um, attacking or um, discriminatorily regulating people's civil rights. So that is a new thing that I discovered as well. So if the entire exercise is based on interpreting the Constitution on uh, and deriving original public meaning, what was your definition of original public meaning? Original public meaning is the information um, that a competent speaker of the English language would attribute to the words of the text. It's very much like what Justice Gorsuch said in that clip. So this is a copy of the Constitution. There's words in this document that convey information uh, the original public meaning is the meaning that this would have, uh, this information that would have been conveyed to a competent speaker of English at the time it was enacted. That's the original public meaning. As to what originalism is, that can be summarized in one sentence, and that is that the meaning, the meaning of the text of the Constitution, the meaning of this document, should remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment. That's originalism. So a lot of times when we focus on originalism, we're talking about the fact that the meaning has not changed. But when we talk about the 14th Amendment, we have to talk about how the meaning was changed, because in this case, it was changed by amendment, which is the only proper way an originalist thinks that the meaning of the Constitution should change. You give readers a history of the evolution of originalism and cite uh, former Attorney General Ed Meese uh, as really one of the earliest and, and most important proponents of the theory of originalism. We have a clip from him uh, on 19, from 1988 uh, speaking about enumerated right, rights in the Constitution. I want to show that and have you talk about the origins of originalism and, uh, and how it really became so controversial in the ensuing confirmation hearings. Let's listen. Courts, of course, have a role in protecting rights. Indeed, they should, because that is a particular power granted by the Constitution. But the rights themselves, in order to be valid, must be derived from written legal documents. That they should be enumerated and fixed in writing is fundamental both because of fairness and because of the need for certainty. 
To argue otherwise would be to suggest that judges have the authority on their own motion to discover and enforce rights that our Constitution and our laws do not ever mention. This view, of course, is at odds with the basic precepts of a political society whose self-understanding holds that all power, all governmental power, including judicial power, has to be derived from the people. Randy Barnett. Well, I have a great deal of respect and admiration for Ed Meese, and I know him personally, and I like him very much. Um, I think what he is manifesting here in 1988 was the conventional wisdom amongst political conservatives and judicial conservatives about constitutional rights. But ironically, they took that conventional wisdom from the New Deal Court, who famously said in footnote four of United States versus Caroline Products in 1938, that there is a narrower scope for the operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on, its, appears on its face to be violating an express or specific prohibition of the Constitution, which are deemed to be equally uh, specific when held to be embraced by the 14th Amendment. So this is the theory promote, promulgated in 1938 that the only constitutional rights that deserve judicial protection or that merit judicial protection are the enumerated rights. But that understanding of uh, constitutional rights was not the con understanding that preceded the New Deal Court when fun unenumerated fundamental rights were widely protected um, uh, by the court and by by the lower by state courts and it wasn't and it wasn't an understanding that held fast after 1938 when for example the right of privacy was protected by the court in 1965 so um, it one of the things that the, the, our book um, uh, is, uh, is, a, is an answer to that particular originalist claim about what rights are protected, in this case, by the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. There are, of course, other provisions of the Constitution that protect rights as well. Um, uh, so it does two things. One is it says that it protects, that that clause protects rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution, and we identify what those rights are. But it does another thing that also is important to the conservative legal movement. Because many conservatives actually question whether the 14th Amendment uh, is properly read as protecting the enumerated rights. They question the position that Ed Meese articulated in 1988, and they this is what's known as questioning the incorporation doctrine. And what our research demonstrates is that those enumerated rights were protected not because they were enumerated per se, but because their enumeration in the Bill of Rights was evidence that they were fundamental rights of citizenship, uh, citizens and uh, and that's one of the ways in which fundamentality can be established by the fact that they're in the Constitution. So uh, to, to put this in layperson's terms, Evan Burnick, you both as conservatives are looking at the constitutional interpretation and suggesting in an evolution of originalist or textualist thinking a more expansive reading of rights. Is that correct? I should at first clarify that I am by no stretch of the imagination a conservative. Um, but from with that out of the way, I do think that we are articulating an understanding of the 14th Amendments that is both going to surprise conservatives in many respects, but is also going to tap into an intuition they have about what kinds of things unenumerated rights could possibly be um, if they weren't going to give judges free reign to invent rights left and right. So the way I can concretize this is by talking about the, uh, the due process doctrine that 
Um, the conservative that conservative justices, uh, given the lead in this respect by uh, the late Justice Scalia, developed to deal with the question of what fundamental rights are incorporated against the states. This is known as the Glucksburg test. It looks to whether rights are deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Sounds very conservative, sounds limited in ways that, um, you know, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty is a test for determining whether a right is a constitutional right, um, just doesn't seem as limited. And what we articulate is something that's even, even more demanding, even more constraining on judges than the deeply rooted in, nations, in the nation's history and traditions formula that Justices Rehnquist and Scalia um, made uh, central to our due process law. Not only do we say, is this right deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, um, if we're talking about an unenumerated right and whether uh, the judiciary should recognize it, we actually call for a stable multi uh, generational consensus as to the centrality of that right to American citizenship. Only if you had an effective supermajority consensus across the states um, that lasted a generation to the effect that a right cannot be taken away without um, severely undermining someone's citizenship, we argue, should that right be treated as a privilege or immunity of citizenship. It's more demanding than the test that conservatives have embraced as a means of determining what rights are fundamental already. So since I obviously mischaracterize your point of view, how would you characterize your, yourself? So I am a left libertarian with an emphasis on left. Um, my politics are are very different from my co-authors in a, in a number of different ways, although um, we certainly see along the same lines with respect to others. Um, I could elaborate in greater detail, but I won't worry that we're gonna very quickly run out of time because my political leanings and how I think about how the law ought to interact with politics writ large um, surprise me on a more or less weekly basis. And Randy Barnett, where you where you two intersect is on your libertarian points of view. Right. Yeah, I'm a libertarian as well, but libertarians are divided in ways that are not commonly acknowledged or even recognized within the libertarian movement. In fact, I think my next book is going to be about the divisions within libertarianism. But I strongly identify as a participant uh, in the conservative legal movement, even as though I am a political libertarian. Um, and so this book is aimed at the conservative legal movement, but it's also aimed at progressives because it challenges uh, the views of progressives as well as to what unenumerated or what fundamental rights, not whether enumerated or unenumerated, are protected uh, uh, by the Constitution. So I do think that um, uh, the book is challenging for both uh, left and right. And let me just uh, add this for, your, for the conservative uh, viewers of this program. If you agree with Attorney General Meese that the only rights that are fundamental and enough to be protected as constitutional are the enumerated rights, then that means you don't have a constitutional right to raise your own children because that right is not anywhere in the Constitution. You don't have a constitutional right of self-defense. You have a right to keep and bear arms, but you don't have a fundamental right to self-defense uh, that those arms might be used for. Those are rights that are so fundamental that they weren't, they didn't need to be put in the Constitution because it would have it would have been insulting the general public to think that anybody would deny the existence of the right to preserve your life, the right to self-defense or the right to raise your own children. But all these 
traditionally grounded fundamental rights, grounded in the positive law of every state, um, are the privileges or immunities of citizenship, even though they're not mentioned in the first 10 amendments. While you talk about uh, progressives and their view of the Constitution, I wanted to get a voice in. This is Justice Elena Kagan on how the Constitution changes. This is from 2010. The 14th Amendment was an enormous break the, after, after the Civil War and, and, and created a different Constitution for America. So partly the changes come in that way. But, but, but partly they, they come outside the formal amendment process as well. If you look at the specific intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, they thought that the 14th Amendment was perfectly consistent with segregated schools. I mean, you just have to, you, you can't really argue otherwise as a historical matter. But in Brown, the court said otherwise. And, you know, step by step by step, decision by decision, in large part because of what Justice Marshall did, you know, we got to a place where the court said it's inconsistent with the principle of equal protection of the laws that the drafters of the 14th Amendment laid down. It's inconsistent with that principle to have segregated schools. So, so that's a way in which change can happen as well. Bernick, how does Justice Kagan's scholarship differ from, from what you're proposing in this book? There are a lot of things that she said that I entirely agree with. I agree that the, the 14th Amendment did radically transform the country. It was designed precisely to do that. Uh, I agree with her that the, the principles that are embodied in the 14th Amendment um, took years, decades, nearly a century um, to come to a point where you had an institution in the Supreme Court that was willing to implement them. And to that extent, I have no uh, quibbles with saying that the law does change. Uh, the law changed from Plessy upholding segregation to Brown, rejecting segregation in public education. But when Justice Kagan goes on to say that there is no way that you can deny as a historical matter that the framers of the 14th Amendment endorse segregated schools, I mean, that's demonstrably not the case. And it took uh, several years worth of debates about what to do in the District of Columbia between Republicans before there was anything resembling sustained discussion about just how the 14th Amendment uh, interacted with segregation at all. This was not a situation in which you had framers swearing up and down that this would not touch segregated schools. You have a couple of offhanded statements that are undeveloped and, un and unpacked. You have a number of Republicans who are by that time on the record as opposing segregated schools. And you have then, several years later, many of the same people and many of the same people drawing upon resources, interpretive resources um, and principles um, that were articulated at the time that the amendment was ratified uh, to talk about just what to do um, under the 14th amendment with respect to segregation. Randy and I argue that by the time we, um, the 14th Amendment was ratified. There was a privilege enjoyable by all citizens to have access to public institutions um, that were central to civic life. 
And we argue that not at the time of the, of, of, uh, the 14th Amendment's ratification, but shortly thereafter, public schooling became sufficiently widespread that that right of access to public institutions by citizens free of arbitrary discrimination included the right not to be arbitrarily excluded from common schools. The fact that it took decades and Brown v. Board of Education, and let's be honest, also the military and a compliant Congress and an entire mass movement agitating for um, the, uh, the delivery on these constitutional promises uh, to make Brown and desegregation the law of the land shouldn't lead us to think that the 14th Amendment um, itself either endorsed or just didn't take a position one way or another on something that is so fundamental to our civic life as public schooling. We're at the 30-minute point of our, our hour-long conversation, and if you'll both indulge me, we've been talking about the 14th all this time. I'm actually going to take a minute and, and put the 14th Amendment on screen, at least the first section and the fifth section, the two that you write about in the book so that uh, people who don't know it by heart can remember. Section 1, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And Section 5, Congressional Enforcement Power, the Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article, ratified, as you said, in 1868. Your readers will get a history of antebellum debates and also the Reconstruction era debates that, that led to the 14th Amendment. And I want to spend a little bit of time because the history is very rich in it. First of all, Randy Barnett, before uh, the, this en enactment, what was the view of citizenship that uh, the Constitu our original Constitution, 1787 document, espoused? Um, I, I'm actually going to let Evan answer that question because uh, he um, has done much of the work on the citizenship, on the development of citizenship that okay. we capture in the first two our, our, um, uh, chapter, the early chapters. But I do want to make, I want to go back to an earlier point. I meant to make it earlier, but I, I didn't. About um, most people, many people today judge constitutional arguments based on the results. So if you, you they, they say, well, here are my political priors, here are my political preferences. If your theory does not match up with my political preferences, I reject your theory. Or the only good theory is a theory that matches up with all my political preferences. The collaboration between Evan and myself um, illustrates that that is not the only way one can go about doing uh, constitutional um, um, uh, scholarship or, or constitutional theory. Uh, because Evan and I don't share the same political views along down the line. And frankly, I'm really not all that aware of all the political views he does have. I think he might be more aware of my views because I'm a, more public about them and he's younger than I am. But I'm not aware of all the views he has because in the years in which we collaborated on this book, we didn't discuss those views. We instead focused on the evidence of what the meaning of the text was. And then we let the evidence of the meaning of the text basically let the chips fall where they may. So first comes the meaning of the text. Then we come to the, the implications of that meaning for results. 
And at that point, then you can judge whether you think the Constitution is a good Constitution because it leads to good results or it's a bad Constitution because it leads to bad results. But that's a separate judgment than figuring out what the Constitution itself says. So a collaboration between two people like Evan Burnick and myself who don't agree on every political position um, illustrates the value of, of, of looking at the Constitution first and then only looking at political consequences as a result of that. So to citizenship and how it was uh, actually enumerated in the, the original Constitution, the original document. It wasn't. I mean, you do not have a definition of citizenship laid out in the 1788 Constitution. Uh, you have qualifications for the presidency, the natural-born citizen. You have a privileges and immunities clause that says the citizens of uh, the several states shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. But you don't have a definition of citizenship. The, 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 um, the Constitution doesn't lay that out in the text. One of the most remarkable features of the 14th Amendment is precisely that it does, for the first time, explicitly take a position on what citizenship is. And it is a broad and inclusive conception of citizenship that we purport to show uh, was initially developed by abolitionists. Abolitionists who uh, grounded citizenship in the equal possession of all people of natural rights and also the recognition that members of a particular polity may have entitlements over and above um, baseline protections for natural rights um, that enable them to participate in government, to participate in civic life. Um, and to receive the benefits of things that go over and above um, the baseline requirements that governments need to follow in their treatment of all people. Many of those additional privileges come by state expense. They are, uh, they are provided through funds given by taxation. So one of the ideas animating this conception of citizenship was that those who um, that citizens are entitled because they're paying taxes, et cetera, um, to, uh, to additional services that are calculated to secure their natural rights and also their civic equality. Among the abolitionists that gave rise to the 14th Amendment, Randy Burnett, you credit uh, Lysander Spooner, Joel Tiffany, and Frederick Douglass. Douglass is well known, I'm sure, to all the people watching us. But Lysander Spooner was a new name to me, and he's important to you in your own evolution of thinking. Who was he? Well, he was a very iconoclastic lawyer from uh, Western Massachusetts um, who uh, wrote a great deal. And I, when I was in college, read one essay about him, very critical of the Constitution that was written after the Civil War. Um, and it wasn't until I was teaching at Boston University that I came across a book that he wrote called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, which was written in 1845. And I thought, well, what, what could anybody possibly have argued in 1845 against the constitutionality of slavery, which took a civil war in the 13th Amendment to uh, abolish. And I found out that he'd written this 280-page book. And then I found out that was part of a six-volume collected works of Lysander Spooner. So I became much more familiar with him. Ultimately, um, I ended up raising money because I, he is buried in Forest Hill Cemetery in Boston. And I went to visit his grave, and it was just marked by a bronze plaque flushed to the ground that had been put in by somebody, it turns out somebody I knew, in the 1970s. And I raised uh, $10,000 to erect a six-foot obelisk monument um, on his grave at Forest Hill Cemetery. And then I actually was able to arrange with the owners of his boyhood home in Athol, Massachusetts, to put a plaque 
commemorating that as his boyhood home in, in Western Massachusetts. So he was a great anti-slavery theorist who has been dismissed and marginalized by law professors and historians as kind of a eccentric crank. But in fact, he was actually very well respected within the abolitionist movement and was very influential. And his work cr crossed a number of different competing factions within the abolitionist movement. Um, and his approach to constitutional interpretation, I'll finally say, is how I became an originalist. I am probably the only person in the United States who became an originalist because I read Lysander Spooner's The Unconstitutionality and Slavery, and I saw the way he did originalism, which was original public meaning originalism, and I thought, hey, wait, that, if that's originalism, I think I could get behind it because I wasn't an originalist. So I became an originalist because of uh, because of Lysander Spooner. Evan Burnick, another name that you say belongs uh, along the list of our founding fathers is Congressman John Bingham. Who is he? So John Bingham is uh, correctly regarded as the primary architect of the specific text of the 14th Amendment. He was a congressman from Ohio um, who spent a lot of time in an area where uh, one of the few areas where abolitionists could actually um, propagate their ideas and interact with one another and seek to persuade people outside of the movement without fear of getting mobbed and, or killed or otherwise persecuted. Um, he is uh, a, a, a anybody who spends a significant amount of time with him is going to be a little bit bothered by his uh, long-windedness. He's very eloquent. He goes on for pages and pages of the congressional record in you know lavish tones, very ornate language. Um, but he has a very sharp legal mind when it comes right down to it. And the sharpness of that mind has really been underappreciated in 14th Amendment scholarship until fairly recently. Early 14th Amendment scholars like Charles Fairman and uh, Raoul Berger um, went out of their way to Bingham Bash. They couldn't say enough negative things about this woolly-headed, muddle-headed thinker who seemed to not be able to identify he, what he meant by the Bill of Rights in a way that anybody today could parse. Um, so he would speak of the Privileges and Immunities Clause of, of Article 4, Section 2 uh, as part of the Bill of Rights. From today's perspective, that looks totally weird and idiosyncratic. Um, but if you focus enough on the historical record, you will find that he was articulating an understanding of the Bill of Rights that, however different from ours, was actually very much within the mainstream of Republican thought, as Bingham himself was in the mainstream of Republican thought. Um, he uh, is not... Um, he, it, one of the difficulties with him is that he gives this speech uh, uh, several years after ratification, in which he seems to contradict things he said before ratification. You need to be careful with him. Um, but he is a tremendous intellect and a really, um, uh, you know, as far as the the impetus within Republic, the Republican Party for a constitutional amendment goes, um, he was as as uh, you know, as as responsible for that push, that insistence that like we really are transforming federalism if we are going to pass all of these new civil rights statutes, and we ought to make sure that we have the constitutional authority to do that in a way that's going to stand up under judicial review and a future Congress is going to respect. 
And once President Andrew Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, as well as the Freedmen's Bureau reauthorization, and it became clear to Republicans that it, this was not a sure thing. Um, we better take measures to prepare for a future if we can't even depend upon our own president, our own Republican presidents um, to carry out our mission. We better put this in the Constitution so that it can never be dislodged. And Bingham was the leader of that effort within the Republican Party. You write in the book that soon after its passage, both the Congress and the courts began misinterpreting the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Why did this happen? I'll let I'll let it. I was saying, no, I, we're not ready to go ahead. I've talked for too long already. Yeah, we could we can only really speculate as to why, because this goes to motives and they didn't say what their motives were. Um, I would say the most benign motive to attribute to the court is that this was a radical change uh, or a fundamental change in our federalism. And many of these Republican judge justices, because it was being undermined by justices that had been appointed by Abraham Lincoln and by uh, President Grant, um, many of these Republicans wanted to see a return to the federalism that preexisted the Civil War, because that's the federalism they knew and they liked. Uh, and so they really undercut, using living constitutionalist methods, an amendment that they didn't fundamentally agree with um, and wanted to restore the federalism that they had remembered from their youth. Um, I, once again, it goes to show that evolving living constitutionalism can be put to bad uses as well as put to good uses. Um, and uh, we would have all been much better off if they had actually stuck to the original meaning of the text, because the meaning of the text must remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment. And it was properly changed by amendment. And then they unchanged it uh, without an amendment. You it really was only a very sorry. brief... There was only really a really one brief glorious moment at which uh, during which W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as abolition democracy, a cross branch thorough commitments to providing not only for the physical freedom of black people, but the economic freedom, the social opportunities, integration into the broader civic order. Um, that was the most ardent hope of the most radical of abolitionists. This was, uh, I mean, the story has been told countlessly, including in du, uh, du Bois's own um, Black Reconstruction, and we certainly couldn't improve upon that. But our story is also ultimately a tragic one um, in respect of the short term when it comes to just how thoroughly the promise of this glorious amendment was compromised um, by, we focus our attention on the judiciary, but the revanchist forces uh, within the South that went out of their way, not only to um, uh, enact the black codes, but um, perpetuate violence and plunder on a scale that even exceeded um, like, or at least comparable to the antebellum period in its, in its ferocity and viciousness with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. So this is not, our story is not a, you know, a Panglossian. We had the 14th Amendment, everything was good for a very, very long time. And then only like a few decades ago, some justices started messing it up. Um, this was a problem from the beginning. And I think it's a testament to the radicalism of the 14th Amendment um, that these forces were so threatened by it that they went out of their way to undermine it. I'm keeping it's also it's also a testament to the value of a written constitution because it was yeah. put in the constitution even though it was undone Absolutely. by the supreme court we're always free to come back to it because mm -hmm. it's there 
Yep. I'm keeping my eye on the clock, I should tell our audience, because you have to, uh, Evan Burnick, uh, teach a course in just a I few do. minutes. Tell, what, tell us about the course you're teaching today. Uh, this is criminal law. So uh, we are spending, we've spent the last uh, three weeks on uh, focusing on self-defense um, and the, um, the, uh, the law on the ground with respect to self-defense. A lot of students are focused on this now um, in light of the, the Rittenhouse trial, which I'm planning to address in class today. Uh, one of the most important things that I try to do as a scholar is to always keep students in, or as a professor is to always keep students in touch with how the law affects people on the grounds and not only that they might understand what the law is, but they recognize their power to change it and that a lot needs to be changed, particularly in the area of criminal law. Well, I'll keep you for about four or five more minutes and then let you get to your class. Uh, and Randy Barnett will stay with us for until our 57-minute point. But if you talk about the uh, uh, perhaps not such a good job that the courts and the Congress did in and, and fulfilling the promise of the 14th Amendment. Let me move to the modern age. One of the specific cases that you cite is Justice Antonin Scalia um, during a McDonald v. Chicago case in March of 2010. And we pulled that clip so we can hear it. And then, Randy Barnett, I want you to have to talk about what this argument is all about here. Let's listen. Mr. Gore, do you think it's at all easier to bring the Second Amendment under the Privileges and Immunities Clause than it is to bring it under our established law of substantive due process? Justice Scalia, I suppose the answer to that uh, would be no, because... And if the answer is no, why are you asking us to overrule 150, 140 years of prior law when, when you can reach your result under substantive due process? I mean, um, you know, unless you're bucking for a... a, a, a a place on some law school faculty. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, uh, I've left law school some time ago, and uh, this is not an attempt to... to well, I mean, you, what you argue is the darling of, of the professoriate, for sure, but it's also contrary to 140 years of our jurisprudence. You cited that exact phrase, that he called it the darling of, the, of a professoriate. Can you help people understand really what's at stake in this questioning? Sure. Well, I actually was there that day when that exchange took place, and I was somebody who uh, is a friend and, and colleague of Alan Gura, who's a graduate of Georgetown Law School, who was arguing that case. I thought that was a low moment in Justice Scalia's distinguished uh, career, because he, if anybody was associated with originalism, it was him. He's Mr. Originalist. And yet here he is, um, not just disagreeing, uh, with an advocate who is arguing in favor of the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, but really making fun of him, um, uh, joking ab about him. Uh, why would you, his, we can rephrase his question, why would you argue for us to follow the original meaning of the Constitution rather than a 140-year mistaken uh, uh, set of uh, judicial rulings by Supreme Court justices in black robes? You could ask the same question the other way, but he didn't ask it that way. Um, and so uh, what's at stake here, I think, um, is whether some conservatives uh, in the, and whether Justice Scalia himself wanted to open the door to legitimate the protection of fundamental rights that were not written in the Constitution when they had believed they had closed the door to legitimate it using the substantive due process doctrine that Justice Scalia said he disapproves of, but he has acquiesced in. In other words, the conservatives thought 
because the substantive due process theory is illegitimate, we can limit it. But if you accept this privileges or immunities clause theory, then it wouldn't be illegitimate, and maybe then you couldn't limit it. Justice Thomas, in this case, who came out the other way, in his opinion, said, look, you can limit the privileges or immunities clause by doing the historical work that originalists do to to figure out what the real meaning of the of the origin of the privileges or immunities clause is in the 14th amendment as a whole that's what we do in our book uh, and getting back uh, to the beginning of our discussion one reason to be hopeful um, that we might actually affect a change on the supreme court's thinking is because we supply the constraining principles of history the constraints provided by history so that these are not a uh, uh, an unlimited warrant for judges to make up whatever rights they wish um, there, it, there, are, there are as many constraints to figure out what the original meaning of the Privilege or Immunities Clause is, is to figure out what the original meaning of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment are, Justice Scalia notwithstanding. Evan Burnick, I don't want your stress level to get too high here, so let me just turn <laughs> to you for just some closing thoughts um, sure. on this argument. What do you want the average Joe, average Jane listening to us to take away from our conversation? This book project, for, for me, was animated by a conviction of the importance of demonstrating beyond any doubts that mass political movements for human freedom are possible within our constitutional system and documenting um, one of the most uh, profound uh, moral achievements in human history. Um, the primary motivation for me as I was making my way through this history that has been canvassed so many times um, and investigating a clause that has or clauses that have been the subject of hundreds of pages if not thousands of pages worth of research is just how exciting and inspiring this story is um, you know one of the big takeaways from this story is that genetics in this context of politics is is not destiny we have always in our power as tom Paine put it to make the world all over again and that's exactly what the abolitionists and the republicans that followed in their footsteps did with the 14th amendment transforming a structure of government that had operated um, under pro-slavery forces as an instrument of domination into one of liberation i am i hopeful that other readers will take the same amount of inspiration from this work as i took from the experience of putting it together with Randy. Well, we'll say thanks to you at this point and let you teach your class. We appreciate you spending so much time with us as the co-author of this book on the 14th Amendment. Thanks. Thanks so much, Susan. I really appreciate it. Randy Barnett, we have about four minutes left. And, we'll, and what I wanted to turn to maybe in using those is, again, making this relevant for people. Through the age of COVID, there have been a lot of disputes about states' rights versus federal rights. Uh, does your work that you've concluded in this book have a bearing on all these big discussions we're having about whether states or the federal government has the final say in decisions such as vaccines and, and other policies around, say, for example, COVID? Well, not so much that, because that's really a matter of the structural powers that are given to the federal government. Um, and our book is about the rights that are, the federal government is authorized to protect. But where it does actually have um, a, a potentially big impact is where our book uh, challenges some progressive orthodoxy. I mean, we've, we've spent an awful lot of time challenging conservative orthodoxy. We also challenge progressive orthodoxy. In particular, among the privileges or immunities of citizenship are the economic liberty 
to acquire, possess, and use and enjoy real and personal property, as well as to enter into contracts. In other words, economic liberties were an essential part of the rights that were protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and then constitutionalized by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. So that means um, that as governors of states or as state legislatures, but really most of the COVID restrictions have come from the executive branch, not from state legislatures passing laws to address COVID. As our economic, as the economic liberty of business people um, and other employees to go about their professional lives has been affected by edicts that have been issued um, by executive branch officials or governors of states, um, it's not that those edicts are all unconstitutional, but they all should be subject to being challenged uh, to see and to have a, a federal court, if necessary, examined to see if, in fact, they are infringing on the privileges or immunities of citizens of their states. And that's something that outside the context of the free exercise of religion, which is an enumerated right, you do not see federal courts protecting. And in that sense, this, this book um, is, uh, uh, would provide a basis for federal courts to protect economic liberties from any arbitrary restriction, including arbitrary restrictions associated with COVID. So as we close here, sort of the big picture questions, you talked about how Lysander Spooner in influenced your thinking at an earlier point in this career. This book seems as though it has also had a role to play in the evolution of your thinking. Uh, what, how have you changed as a result of this work in, uh, intellectually, and where do you see it going from here? Well, it is deep in my view, view that I've always, that I've had for a very long time, um, that the story of our constitutional of our constitution does not begin or end at the founding. I do think many of the criticisms that are made of our founding generation are valid. Many of them are overblown. In fact, the seeds of liberty were planted at the founding by the Declaration of Independence and eventually harvested. But the rest of our constitutional history is about the story of the development of those seeds into a full-blown, as my colleague says, liberation movement that culminated first in a civil war uh, that turned out to be a civil war over slavery and it culminated in the amendment of our original constitution um, and the people that are responsible for that, who are responsible for the Liberty Party, the Free Soil Party, the Republican Party, and, the, and these Republican Reconstruction Amendments, they should be a part of our constitutional history, too. John Bingham should be. Lysander Spooner should be. Jacob Howard should be. Our book is a story of, of all of these heroes. And these are, not, these are heroes that have been neglected by our constitutional narrative. And the more you learn about them, the more inspired you will be. Randy Barnett, thank you very much for being on C-SPAN today, along with your co-author, to talk about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Uh, appreciate the hour with you. It's always good to see you, Susan. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast on our new C-SPAN Now app.